Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 20 in the book of Hebrews titled, The Earthly Tabernacle, Restricted Access. I am Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we are continuing to go through the book of Hebrews. We spent two weeks talking about the glory of the new covenant superseding the old. Um, But now we go back to the tabernacle to kind of dig through the instrumentation and and talk about it a little bit. Uh, Can you give us an overview of what we're going to see in this section? Sure. This is a really exciting section uh, in which the author to Hebrews gives us some some spiritual insights into actual artifacts or physical aspects of the Old Covenant sacrificial system that we would never have understood in terms of their spiritual significance. But his real point is to say that all, the, all of those things are obsolete. They will soon pass away. Uh, he's not saying that they are intrinsically bad or evil. It's just that they are inferior to what Christ did. And so we're going to talk about how Christ's uh, place of ministry is superior, uh, the blood that he offers is superior, uh, the effectiveness is superior. We're going to see all of that. So the superiority of Christ is going to shine. But we're going to see some details here that show how the Old Covenant was really a a type or a shadow of the beauty that was to come later. Right. Now, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of the incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food, drink, and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So the first question I want to ask you is, what topic is the author addressing, and why does he go into detail, but then he tells us we cannot go in more details? <laughs> it really is kind of provocative. It makes me excited to go to heaven and find out the rest of the details that we didn't have time to go into, because these are really exciting. He goes into actual details or aspects or artifacts, physical aspects of the Old Covenant sacrificial system that were written into the Mosaic Covenant, into the Old Covenant. He never mentions the temple at all, doesn't discuss, discuss it. He's talking about the tabernacle. So he zeroes in on what you would read about if you were reading the book of Exodus and how the tabernacle was set up and what was in it. And what we're going to see is that these things in every way symbolize or point to Christ. So again, let's keep in mind the big picture of this book of Hebrews. The author to Hebrews is writing to Jewish people who had made an outward, a a verbal profession of faith in Christ and had begun, let's say, the Christian life, but were under intense pressure to give up their 
their confession of Christ and go, go back to Old Covenant Judaism. So the author's whole strategy here is to show how impossible that is and why it would be wrong because of the superiority of Christ as the mediator of a superior covenant resulting in a superior life. That's the three-part outline we've seen in the book of Hebrews. Now, we're right in the middle of that second section where he's showing that Jesus brings a superior new covenant. And the centerpiece of the old covenant was the animal sacrificial system. And the central location of the animal sacrificial system was this tabernacle that we're going to talk about. It was established by the command of God. There was nothing wrong with it, but it was just a type and a shadow, a symbol. It's been fulfilled now in Christ. So how could you ever go back to that old covenant uh, pattern of worship now that Christ has come? That's the point the author's making here. Right, right. Now, you, you mentioned in your answer that he talks about the tent, not the temple. Uh, do you think there's a specific theological reason for this? Well, I think so. I think the tabernacle is what you're going to read about um, in the Mosaic Covenant, in the books of Moses. The temple wasn't built, wasn't even thought of by Moses. They were a people on the move. They were on, on Exodus. They were about to go out of, or they had gone out of uh, Egypt by then when they were at Mount Sinai, and, they were, and Moses was getting the regulations for this tabernacle, which he saw on the mountain, and they were in transit going to the Promised Land. So there were people on the move. The tent, tabernacle's a tent, was a movable place of worship. And so the author's focusing on that. The temple came later once the people were settled into the promised land during the time of King David, and he wanted to build a more permanent uh, resting place for God, but there was no permanence. Um, so God applauded his desire, but he said, look, I never asked for this to be done. So it wasn't a bad thing. And the te temple was built in the pattern of the tabernacle. It was just made of more permanent walls. But the author here focuses on the tabernacle. Yeah, I was wondering if it was because of the temporary nature of the tabernacle. It seems more temporary than a temple. Yeah, Though we know the temple is temporary. Yeah. <laughs> it's not here anymore. Yeah. So anyway. Now, what about the different artifacts we go through, like the, uh, the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence? What do these regulations teach us about approaching God? Well, I think just the word holy place or sanctuary, etc., gives the sense of holy ground. And that's uh, something to some degree uh, that's very man-centered or artificial, something that God sets up uh, to let us know of his own holiness and our, and our sinfulness. So, for example, uh, when Moses saw the burning bush, God said to him, Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. God just designated it holy ground because he was going to reveal himself there similar to the earlier time when Jacob uh, lay down on some patch of ground somewhere with a stone for a pillow and then had an amazing vision of God and of heaven and of a stairway going up to heaven and, and all that. And when he woke up, he said, how awesome is this place? And he named it Bethel, House of God. It was just a patch of ground. And if you went there today, you could probably drive right over it or walk right by it and not know that was actually the GPS location where Jacob had his dream. But it's no longer holy ground. It was made holy by God's designation. And so it was with the sanctuary. It was a holy place because God said so. It was made up, however, of earthly artifacts, of earthly materials. It was essentially earthy or earthly. Not, not worldly, by that I mean wicked or sinful. It was just made up of earthy, earthly materials. And so we start with that sanctuary, that tabernacle. And then in it are certain artifacts uh, that we can walk through. And each one of them gives a symbol of our spiritual relationship with God. And you mentioned the word holy. That's a big theme in the book of Leviticus, the holiness code, the ritual watchings. 
Uh, why is it so important for God's people to be holy? Yeah, God says very plainly, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So it's very important for us to understand what holiness is, the holiness of God. It is something that we will be drinking in and trying to understand for all eternity. So the word the theologians tell us essentially means separate or a sense of separation. And so God is holy. That means he's separate. And we frequently use another word above or he's separated above all creation. So he's lofty and separate, and I would say completely other. He's an other level of being. So we could take all the universe and everything that's in the universe and put it in two categories, creator and creature, or created. The, those are the two, uh, two categories of existence. God is the creator, and he is infinitely separate from or above his creation. Secondly, we have a sense of his separation from evil. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. And so God, when he tells his people, you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, he's really meaning in the second sense. I am separate from evil, so you must also be separate from evil. But it could be also somewhat the first sense. You should be separate from everything else and be my prized possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be a holy people separated unto me. You are my prized possession. So those are different ways we think of the word holiness. Yeah. Now, what do we get out of this bifurcation inside the, the tent where you have the holy place and then the most holy place? Why the two separate chambers? And then in the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant. What's significant about the Ark and the, the cherubim over the mercy seat? And, you know, God said, I will meet with my people there. I was reading that in Exodus today in the, in the instructions. So why is that so significant? Well, let's take the first of these, the separation of the, of the tabernacle within into the holy place and the most holy place. Again, this is something that God designates. It's a teaching tool. Um, you know, honestly, there was nothing particularly special about the linens that made up the curtains or the acacia wood poles or the, the bronze or brass fittings um, or the patch of desert where they put up the tent. Um, it was just a teaching tool designated by God. If God says something's holy, it's holy. And so we don't minimize it at all. So what's the difference between something that's holy and something that's most holy? Again, it's a sense of proximity to God, like you could imagine concentric circles, things that are far away from God, you know, they're not holy at all, they're common, secular, um, the, what sometimes the, in the Old English the word profane, um, not the way we would use it, but it's, it's common. Um, but then the closer you get to God, then it's, you get into the, the gravitational pull or the, the brightness of his holiness. Well, the most holy place, that was the centerpiece of where God would meet, as you said, where God would meet with the people. And so God set up special rules for that most holy place to teach us some very important lessons. And what is that basic lesson, which I think we're going to tease out in these next few verses? Well, that God is holy and we're not. In our natural status, we are sinful. We are wicked. We are defiled in our sin. We are darkness and he is light. And we're not allowed to come into his presence or he'll kill us. Uh, it's not just that we're creature. It's because we are rebellious. He is teaching, as he will say plainly in this chapter, that the way in had not been revealed. Uh, in other words, you are not welcome. Or as he said right from the start to Moses, do not come any closer. I mean, that kind of sums, sums it up, the Old Covenant. This far you may come and no farther. That's what the Old Covenant 
restrictions were all about. That's what the walls and curtains were all about. You may not come here. And if you do, you will die. So, And we see that also, uh, and we've talked about this before, but it's very powerful. At Mount Sinai, how God designated a mountain to be a holy mountain. And he was going to come and reveal himself, though God is omnipresent throughout the entire universe. He chose to reveal himself there in Sinai, on Mount Sinai. This would be a mountain of his revelation. So he was going to descend in certain symbols of his presence, such as lightning, fire, a storm, and then the effect of his being there, the earthquake. And so everyone in the camp was told, you're going to meet with God in this mountain. Um, and they were to consecrate themselves and refrain from sin and all this kind of thing. And so they're going to they're come up and meet with God. But that day was a dreadful, terrifying day. And God intended to make everyone in the camp feel terrified. Talk, talk about the terror of an earthquake. The ground beneath your feet is shaking. And there was this voice of God so loud that the people were terrified when they heard it. And then there's the, the fire on top of the mountain like it's a volcano, but it's descending from heaven. And there's this sense of, of a trumpet call getting louder and louder. And it's just absolutely terrifying. And the author will say that Moses said, you don't get this in the Old Testament, but the author of Hebrews said that Moses said, the sight was so terrifying, the sight is so terrifying, I'm trembling with fear. So there was this absolute terror. But what was very interesting is God put a, a barrier, a wall, around the base of the mountain, preventing the people from going up the mountain. Now, you would think, look, if there's an active volcano, you're running the other way. You don't need a fence to keep you from going up into the molten lava. You're running for your life. But God said to Moses, no, put a, put a barrier, a fence, around this mountain so that if anyone comes up on the mountain, they must be killed. Not a hand to be laid on them, but they would be stoned to death or shot with arrows. So there's the death penalty for approaching God. Well, that's a pretty clear lesson, isn't it? So that wall at the base of Mount Sinai is saying the same thing, thus far you may come and no farther. And yet he knew that people would not be running in terror the other way. They were naturally, supernaturally maybe, attracted to God. They want to be close to God and we're drawn to him but our sins do not let us come into his presence. So that's about what the Old Covenant is teaching. You may not come as you are into my presence. Yeah, as you're explaining Mount Sinai, you're just filling me with gratitude for the New Covenant. Mm -hmm. And uh, just for our listeners, I want to read Hebrews 10, verse 19, where the author is, he's ushering us into the New Covenant and how much greater this is. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places... Whereas, you know, before we didn't have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is so much different than Sinai Amen. and the old Amen. tabernacle. Yeah, and, and what the author's doing here is what, what he's going to do, and, and, and actually doesn't clearly spell it out, but there's enough there, you know what he's doing. Saying the only way that you can come into the presence of God is by Jesus Christ. So how can you possibly turn your back on him? So let's look at the actual artifacts that were in the tabernacle. Look what he mentions. In verse 2 he says, A tabernacle was set up, this movable tent, and in its first room, the outer room, were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. Each of these is in some ways a symbol of Jesus Christ. For example, the lampstand is a symbol of Jesus Christ. Now you have to imagine there was there were no provision for windows in the tabernacle. So you get a nice thick linen curtain and linen 
kind of canopy and, and all this thick and you get it made and you walk in and you're in pitch darkness, absolute darkness, except now there is this, this lampstand. And the lampstand was an oil-fed lampstand and so the oil uh, represents, as it does in many places, the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the, the light of Christ in our lives. So he is the light of the world and it is by the power of the Spirit that we see the light of Christ. So there's the symbol of Christ being the light of the world. Uh, we also have the table. Now, table consistently represents fellowship. It represents right. friendship and relationship. And, uh, you know, on that uh, table was set some bread, uh, which would be the bread of fellowship. And so there was this sense of, of intimacy with God. The show bread means literally the bread of faces. So where you would come in some ways symbolically face to face with God, you would have fellowship with God. The table, well, that's represented. Jesus is, his, his flesh is bread for the world, and he is the bread that came down from heaven. Absolutely. I am I am the bread. Absolutely. I am the bread of life. Plus, he spends so much time in the Gospels eating with people. He's just eating and eating, eating meals it's with the Jesus. the table. Yeah, the table. You know, he, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So there's that sense of fellowship. And Christ is the consummation of that. And then uh, it, it speaks also of the consecrated bread, which I just mentioned. So all of these three things are symbolized with Christ. That's in the holy place. Then you've got the most holy place behind the second curtain. And in that, you've got even more symbols of Jesus. Okay, you've got the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. And then within the Ark, you've got the gold jar of manna. And you've got the um, uh, Aaron's staff that had budded and the stone tablets of the covenant. Now, all of these give yet more symbolic representations of Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the entire Old Covenant. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So both verbally predictive prophecies point to Jesus and typically or symbolic prophecies point to Jesus. And so you look at this and you've got the, uh, uh, the golden altar of incense, which spent every day of the year outside the most holy place, except on the day of atonement, it was brought in. Now the, uh, the incense was a special concoction. It was laid out, its ingredients were laid out in the, in the book of, uh, of Exodus. So how you would make the, this incense and it burned and the smoke rose and we see in the book of revelation and other places that the smoke of the incense represents the prayers that ascend to god and so here this is really a beautiful picture of christ's high priestly ministry for us which the author has already covered in 725 he always lives to intercede for us so the fragrant offerings that float upward represents jesus's priestly intercessions for us in the holy of holies in the most holy place. So you've got this altar of incense, and then you've got the ark. Now the ark was the centerpiece of the animal sacrificial system. It was a golden box. It was covered with gold, as we mentioned, and it contained some things, and the author goes into details in, in what it contains. It contains a golden jar of manna, which again uh, represents Jesus as the bread of the world, uh, bread, of, bread of heaven that comes down to bring, give life to the world, Jesus said in John 6. And so there was some actual manna, which God supernaturally sustained in this golden jar, it represented the bread from heaven. Jesus said, I am the bread uh, that came down from, uh, from heaven to give life to the world. So you got that. Then you've got Aaron's staff that budded. Now, again, this is just filled with Old Testament history. But there was some clamoring about the privileges of Aaron as the priest and, and who it was uh, that, that really had the right um, to be priests. I think it was Korah or the sons of Korah that were questioning him. And so um, Moses, God told Moses to, to honor Aaron. 
and they would do a contest. And so Aaron's staff, his name Aaron was written on it, and the staffs of the rebels were laid out, and he would show who he would choose. He'd already chosen Aaron, but they were rebelling. So they came and looked, and Aaron's staff had budded uh, like it was a living almond tree with, with almond flowers and actual almonds on it. I mean, God went the whole way, and it was flourishing and producing fruit and all that. It's, it's a miracle. It was a staff that he like, carried around, a stick, and, and it was dead. It was a dead stick. And then it's suddenly alive and bearing fruit, clearly a picture of the resurrection of Christ. And so Christ's resurrection is the way that he ever lives to intercede for us, his constant life as our high priest. And then you've got the tablets of the law. And again, the law points in every way to Jesus, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He obeyed the law. It is by the law he died, and he fulfilled the law on our behalf. All of these things point toward Christ. What about the mercy seat? Ah, the mercy seat. So you've got these cherubim. uh, They are representations of angels. And um, Moses was given a vision of what, what they looked like, and so he was able to tell the, the artist uh, what to make. And they, it was uh, of hammered gold and, and molded into the, into the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And there the blood of the sacrifice was poured once a year. When the priest went in to offer that, that sacrificial uh, atoning blood, he poured it there on the mercy seat or on the on the uh, the seat between the cherubim. That was the place that God received the blood which would atone for the sins of his people. And there also he would meet with Israel, as you mentioned, um, in I think in Exodus 25, there above the ark, above the mercy seat, I will meet with. But it's on the basis of blood. And so you have this beautiful picture of on the basis of blood, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But when that blood is shed, there I will meet with you. And so actually at one point, Moses heard the voice of God speaking from between there. That was, it was located there. You know how we can locate sounds left or right, up or down. There, between these golden metal cherubim, God met with and spoke to Moses. Very powerful. One last little note, and it's really kind of interesting. Um, at the resurrection uh, in John's gospel, uh, Jesus' uh, linens, which wrapped up his body, were empty. He was gone. And uh, the witnesses looked in and they saw two angels, one at the head and the other at the foot. It's not an accident. That's the new mercy seat. That's the new place where God meets with his people, the resurrection of Christ. Beautiful. Isn't that powerful? Yeah. Now, the author adds this interesting thing. He says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So he mentions all the instruments. You go into much more detail, and, uh, and I really appreciate that, than the author does. But then he, for this audience, he says, we can't speak of these. And then he moves on and makes another point. Why does he say this? I don't really know, but I just want to say something about it, okay? I'm writing a book right now on heaven and what we're going to be learning in heaven. One of the premises of my book is that heaven is, a, is not a static place. It's a dynamic place, and the essential dynamism is within us. We're going to be learning things. We're going to be learning and learning and learning and learning about the glory of God. And so wouldn't it be exciting if, if God himself takes us back into far more details, not just with the tabernacle, but all of these symbols that he wove into history? That, that's going to be pretty exciting. So he'll have plenty of time for details then. So So his next point is actually something we've talked about over and over in the podcast. He says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, I love how he tells us the interpretation, 
By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. So he's talking about this restricted access. Can you talk about the blood that the high priest has to go and what he's doing here on the Day of Atonement? All right, well, the, the priest is offering blood every day. All right, every single day there's animal sacrifice going on all the time, all the time. All right, not just the Day of Atonement. But he does it in the holy place, not in the most holy place. So that's endlessly going. And it's just like the author makes very, very plain. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The wages of sin is death. All sin deserves a death penalty. And that's the lesson that the author is trying to get across here. So he says, look, everything, once it was set up uh, like God wanted it to, then the priest would carry on continually with endless repetition the animal sacrifice. But once a year, they were going to, into the most holy place. This symbolized, within a year, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, the utterly unique and final sacrifice. The problem was, there was soon a new year. And so, year after year after year, they would once a year enter into the, uh, the holy of holies or the most holy place. So, it's just endless repetition. But there is at least some aspect of the once-for-all aspect of Jesus. Jesus, however, did it just once for all time, never to be repeated. So, to sum up, the endless repetition of the sacrifices shows that they were not effectual, that they were just symbolic. But they also teach an important lesson, and that is, as the author says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. There has to be a death. All sin deserves the death penalty. And so it is in this way that Jesus atones for our sins by the shedding of his own blood. Now, what do you get out of verse 8, where he basically gives you the what the Holy Spirit is indicating? I, I love that language. Yeah. He's teaching the people, again, what was said to, uh, to Moses, this far you may come and no farther. Uh, you're not welcome. You cannot just come to God on your own. And so the, the way had not yet been open as long as that first tabernacle was still standing. So he's giving strong overshadowing to the time when God's going to be removing that first tabernacle. Right. It's gone. And so the idea, the Holy Spirit was saying, you cannot come this way. Only by the finished and perfect work of Christ is a new and living way open for us by which we enter God. You cannot come to God any other way. I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the only way into the presence of God. The Holy Spirit showing that very plainly. Right. Now he does say in verse 9 that this is symbolic. This tent is symbolic for the present age. To me that's a little bit of a head scratcher because I thought we're in the new covenant now. And so, but he says this old tent is symbolic for the present age. Well, yeah, I think what he's saying is he knows that the Jewish people, for the most part, hadn't come to Christ yet. And even these Jewish professors of faith in Christ are struggling with it. And so he wanted to teach them that these animal sacrifices were going to be obsolete. So these Jewish Christians have to be among the first Jews to give up on it, to turn away forever, forever from the animal sacrificial system. It's done. And so these things were illustrations for the present time so that you are helped in this major transition the Lord wants you to perform now to, to, to go from the old covenant fulfilled to the new covenant now, which is eternally and infinitely better. Again, I want to say something about verse 8. I did mention it, but I love the words Holy Spirit. The author again and again points to the Holy Spirit as the, as the author of Scripture. It is by the Holy Spirit, you know, so as the Spirit says today, if you do not 
if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's, you know, it was the Holy Spirit, really, that wrote Psalm 95. Well, it was the Holy Spirit that wrote Exodus. It was the Holy Spirit that taught us the details of the tabernacle. You know, you've probably had that experience of reading through the Bible in a year and you get through all the exciting stories of Genesis and, and all the thrilling, you know, Exodus. And, and then you get to Sinai and it's awesome. And then you start getting into details about the tabernacle. Well, you can thank the Holy Spirit. You may find it not so interesting. Now that I've really understood the book of Hebrews, I find it incredibly interesting. But it's come from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is indicating something. And he's saying, were it not for Jesus, you all, entire human race, would be excluded. You could not come in the presence of God. Yeah. Now, the second half of verse 9 basically sums up what we've been saying this whole time, that um, in this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So it's insufficient for actual cleansing, insufficient for forgiveness, actual forgiveness of sins. Yeah, I mean, you think about the conscience. Conscience is a part of the original creation. Every human being has a conscience. And the conscience is what presses you to do right and to avoid doing wrong and then judges your behavior, you know, whether you did right or did wrong. Conscience is not perfect because it doesn't tell you what right and wrong is. So you could have people in completely sinful, even demonic religions, and if they don't fulfill the duties of that religion, they feel guilty, their conscience is striking them, um, etc. So, you know, people can even feel guilty for coming to Christ initially. You know, their conscience is bothering them because they're betraying their parents and all that. It's not, you know, that's just the conscience, but it's a helpful part. And here's the thing, when you violate your conscience, usually, overwhelmingly, you know, you have sinned. And so the sinner feels guilty. And there's lots in literature about that, like Lady Macbeth who tries to clean the blood off her hands when she had murdered someone, or the telltale heart, a, a, a macabre story by Edgar Allan Poe, Poe about a man who murdered somebody and then could hear his heart continue to beat. And he, it's just your guilty conscience pounding on you. You're, you're a murderer, you're a murderer, you're a murderer, and you just feel guilty. And there's nothing you can do to get rid of it. And David felt the same way after he, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband to cover it up. Felt so guilty, and he knew the blood of bulls and goats could not take it away. Psalm 51 makes it plain. plain. I would offer them if they could help. But the sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, that's what he felt inside. I am guilty. And so the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse the conscience. But the blood of Jesus can. That's the good news of the new covenant. He can clear your conscience. Amen. Now, it does say in verse 10 that these do deal with food, drink, and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until a time of reformation. I just want to ask the question, what benefit is that? The regulations for a food, drink, you know, washings? Well, God in his wisdom was setting up a context so that when Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews, that means something. So what is it to be a Jew? Well, a lot of things. But our religion is very important to us. Well, tell me about your religion. Well, we believe our religion was given to us from God through books uh, by a leader, Moses. He wrote us these books, the five books of Moses. And at the center of that was the animal sacrificial system, etc. So these patterns and rituals and regulations were part of the context that made the Jewish nation Jewish and gave a context for Jesus ultimately explaining how his death on the cross would mean anything for us. Honestly, it takes some explanation. You have to explain or teach the gospel to people. Pagans who, who know nothing about Judaism, it's a long journey to try to understand how the death of some guy on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago means anything for me today. 
But the animal sacrificial system was a teaching tool to teach us how Jesus' death can and does atone for sin. Yeah. I want to ask um, one final question, and then if you could give us your final comments as well on this section. Uh, this, this text is all about you know, being restricted access. But as you describe the holy place and the holy of holies where God would meet with his people, the inclination of my heart, and I think of, of any Christian who listens to this, is I want to be there. I want to be in the most holy place. But the author of Hebrews says now that we can enter boldly. So how does one enter boldly into the holy place and experience the presence of God that he has to offer while we're still in this journey on this side of heaven? It's a great question, and I think the only answer we can say is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing our full inheritance. The Greek word is arabon. It's the portion of our of our inheritance, a little small percentage of it, that is farmed out to a, a minor child, uh, let's say the, the son or daughter of a, of a dead billionaire couple, and it's held in trust until they you know, become adults. And so there's a, a tiny stipend that is given for the sustenance, uh, food, clothing, shelter, education, you know, whatever. Um, you know, if, if they're standing to inherit several billion dollars, it's going to be a pretty good chunk of money. Probably their little stipend will be more than most of us make in a year. But at any rate, that's uh, the, the deposit the Holy Spirit gives us, a sense of our future heavenly life. And so we are on earth. We're not in heaven yet. Jesus' tabernacle is in heaven, not on earth, as the author is going to make plain in the next section. It's a, it's a heavenly sanctuary, and we're not there yet. But we can, through the Spirit, have a foretaste of what that heavenly fellowship will be like. So when the author of the Hebrews says to us, now, on earth, let us draw near now, he means by faith, through the activity of the Holy Spirit, we can, in a foretaste sort of way, have fellowship with God while we're still here on earth. Hmm. Thank you, Andy. That was episode 20 in the book of Hebrews, Bible study questions. Please join us next time where we discuss Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14, titled Eternal Redemption Through the Blood of Christ. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.